Thank you to everybody. Yes, please. To everybody, we had a huge crowd, I think 60 or so people at our house this morning, so we probably could have just did church there this morning and, and called it a day, but uh, thank you to everybody that came to celebrate and rejoice, and congratulations to everybody who made that public commitment. We had nine baptisms, if you didn't count that in there, nine baptisms today, which I think is pretty dang phenomenal, so praise God, praise God. Hey, welcome. Again, thanks for being here. Whether you're here in person, whether you're still at home listening online, saw another new family coming back in this evening. So, man, every time somebody comes back, it's like, ah, new people, they're here. Finally, they're back. So it's just, it's a celebration to see each person. The Barbosas are here tonight. So just welcome them if you see them this evening. We're working through the Gospel of Luke together for the second year in a row as a church for this time of the year. And we've made it to chapter six, which in the Gospel of Luke, we call it the Sermon on the plane. It's very comparable, perhaps almost the exact same sermon as the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew with a few differences. And whether it's the Sermon on the Mount or it's the Sermon on the Plain, essentially what Jesus is teaching with this sermon is what a lifestyle in an alternative community looks like, in a countercultural society, what that looks like in the kingdom of God, a kingdom that will be ruled by the values of Jesus and not the values of this world. And so he says crazy things like the first shall be last, or blessed are those who mourn, blessed are those who are poor, blessed are the peacemakers, woe to you who are rich. It's upside down, backwards values to the world's standards. And as we read these verses, we shouldn't be reading through them as some sort of checklist, some Christian to-do list of things I need to do. But what we should be seeing is what the kingdom of God looks like, a kingdom that is built upon love. And so verse 27, Jesus continues, we've gone through the Beatitudes, the blessed are, the blessed are, the woe are, the woe are, are those. And now he changes in this middle section, he says, but to you who are willing to listen. Jesus is now teaching to those who are willing to listen. Jesus never forces himself on anyone. So he's saying, look, for those of you who are willing to listen, for those of you whose hearts are open, I say, Love your enemies. That's the idea Jesus is going to unpack in this section of Scripture, and it's groundbreaking. Most religions had some sort of teaching about, you know, doing good deeds or, you know, helping others or being kind. But Jesus goes completely out of bounds, and he says, love your enemies. I was thinking today, because had some issues with, with Emery this afternoon, getting in a fight. That girl, I'll tell her stuff, and literally three days later, she acts like I never told her those things. And so I think we do that often as a Christian. We're like, no, nah, I mean, I, did I really hear that? Love your enemies? Ah, maybe. And we act like we forgot about it. This is more than putting a tolerance bumper sticker on your car, okay? <laughs> this is active love, this is pulling for your enemy's well-being. This is looking for opportunities to do good for your enemy. Jonathan Martin, he's a, a modern author, and like most authors today, he spends most of his time on Twitter. This was a post he had a few weeks ago. He says, loving your enemy is the core of Christian discipleship. Do not be deceived on this. There is not a close second or third priority. Learning to follow Jesus is learning to bless those that curse you 
full stop. I never had seen anybody write out full stop. I thought it was actually a typo in the thing, but full stop apparently just means mic drop, like period, the end, don't debate me, this is how it is. See, the mark of a mature believer isn't how much you pray, although praying is certainly part of being a mature believer, and it's not how much you read your Bible, it's not how much you come to church, all those things are good, it's not how many small groups you are, the mark of a mature believer is your attitude of love towards those who are deeply different than you, including, yes, your enemies. If you've been here any length of time, and I got the shirt on tonight too, there's a piece of art in the lobby. Um, Some of you know I had a little t-shirt business we did as a fundraiser in in a charity several years ago called Salty, and this was one of the shirts that we had. And we just changed the artwork to, to a piece of art to put in our lobby because we thought it illustrated kind of what our mission was as a church in regards to love. And it's simply the word love, and it's got a bunch of different names and words on it. So it's love the religious, love the poor, love the atheist, love black, love Asian. There's even a love the insurance agent. I made sure we got that one added in there. (laughs) People don't give a lot of love to their insurance agents. But there's one in there that says terrorist. And I'll mention there are actually some words that were on that. I had uh, the graphic design guy at my office do this for me and put it all together. And I said, just, you know, be be in your face with the words. There are some words we had to delete. They were that in your face. And we can talk off off record about that sometime if you ever want to know what those are. But there's a word on here that says terrorist. And a lady, when we were just starting the church, I put a picture of this online, and she must have zoomed in really close, like, well, who are all the people these, these, this church is going to love? And she posted on our Facebook page, she said, I'd never come to your church. You love terrorists. You've crossed the line. So I did what you should, of course, always do on Facebook, respond <laughs> to, <laughs> to that. And what I normally do when somebody's hating on me, and and I've got lots of experience uh, with customers over the last 20 years, when somebody's hating on me, man, I just try to kill them with my words. And not necessarily the the style of the words or the tone of the words, frankly, just quantity of words, just like I do y'all every week. I just figure if I say enough, it'll somehow get somewhere. And I'll, I'll save you all the details. I'll just summarize what I told this lady. It was like this long, but the summary is, Paul was a terrorist against Christians, and look what God did to him. And I thought, that's the end of it. She's, boom, you know, full stop, (laughs) mic drop, right? She, of course, responded, I see what you're saying. God loves everyone, which is not what I was saying. I was saying we're supposed to love everyone. But she says, but, here we go. I'll just read it to you. I won't be attending your church. Though God can change anyone, most terrorists are radicals who truly believe that if we don't share in the Muslim God, then we are infidels and we need to die. This is an open invitation to them which will catch their attention and put refuge church in more of a danger of becoming a target than it does for converting them. And then she quotes some scripture which didn't even really relate that I could tell. And she ends with with this. She says, in short, I would beseech you, it's a big word, beseech you to seek God regarding this. And I responded, I did. He said, love your enemies. (laughs) Full stop. See, we read this instruction from Jesus, and we're like, love your He doesn't really mean that. Jesus, he means, you know, love the guy who stole my girlfriend, or, you know, love that person who cut me off in traffic, or love those people that have a chance of one day eventually becoming a good person. 
I mean, Jesus doesn't mean love the murderer. He doesn't mean love that dirty politician. He doesn't mean love the abortion doctor. He doesn't mean love that person that got my kid hooked on drugs. Jewish rabbi, this is in 2008, about 12 years ago, there was a bombing in Bombay or Mumbai, whatever it is called over there these days. And after that bombing, this Jewish rabbi who does know the Old Testament, it does say in the Old Testament to love your neighbor, But he says this, and the words will be on the screen. He said, could God really be so unreasonable? Could Jesus be so cruel as to ask me to love baby killers? And would such a job be moral or God be moral if he did? Could I pray to a God who loves terrorists? Could I find comfort in him knowing that he offers them comfort as well? No, such a God would be my enemy. He would abide in Hades rather than heaven, and I would be damned before I would worship him. I will accept an eternity in purgatory rather than a moment of celestial bliss shared with these beasts. It's tough. And that actually went around the internet at the time, I remember, and people were like, yeah, see, this is what Jesus really meant. And it it got passed around a lot. But Jesus is clear. And I, I rarely say that the Bible is clear, but there's no asterisk for terrorists. There's no exclusions for KKK members. There's no command that we're only supposed to love people that one day will become followers of Christ. Jesus simply says, love your enemies. And then drive it home a little bit more. Then he says, because if you don't know what love means, it's a verb. It's an action. He says, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. See, Jesus is making this very specific. He wants you to think of those people who have hurt you personally. He wants you to think of those people who have spoken bad about you personally. He wants you to proactively then love those people. And again, what's happening here is Jesus isn't giving us a to-do list. He's unveiling his kingdom. A kingdom where there is no revenge. A kingdom where there is no division among classes. A kingdom where love and being a good neighbor rules. And so what happens if we took Jesus seriously on this command? What happens if we started living the kingdom life right now? We got a glimpse of that in the 1960s. Martin Luther King and all the civil rights leaders around him, they made enormous change in our country Not by fighting their enemies, but simply by loving their enemies. Not surprising, Martin Luther in his home church gave a sermon on this exact verse every single year. And I'm just going to give you the one from Christmas Eve, 1967. It's beautiful. He's amazing. He says, bomb our homes and threaten our children. And as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on some wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us, and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit culturally or otherwise for integration, but we will still love you. But be assured that we'll wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, but will appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process and our victory will be a double victory. Isn't that beautiful? So I think often when we love our enemy, we feel like we're, we're giving them a free pass. Like, surely I'm not supposed to love them in spite of their flaws and their sins. And if I do, 
then people are going to think I'm loving the wrong people and I'm doing good for the wrong people. And then, well, what will people think of me? But judgment, which is what we're going to talk about next week, wrath, punishment, all of that belongs to God. Our call is to love. And so I thought this week, what would happen instead of on Wednesdays, the group that holds up signs at the abortion clinic over there on college by my Starbucks, what would happen if on Wednesdays, instead of holding up signs and protests, they took them cookies every Wednesday? Where would that conversation go? Or what would happen if you have a politician that you hate, per se, that's your enemy, and for a week straight, you posted something nice every single day of that week? You'd be like, man, what? I can't find anything nice to say about this politician. Well, how about we start with they're created in the image of God. So we can say nice stuff about everyone. We think we need to protect God, that we need to defend God. God will not falter if we don't argue and fight about everything under the sun. We can and we should radically love those who, by loving them, makes other Christians think that we are the enemy. And I'll tell you, that's one of the things I'm kind of proud of lately as a church. Refuge is starting to get a reputation around town. And a lot of people are like, don't go to our church. I think people wouldn't love you as much there, but why don't you check out Refuge? And man, every time I hear that, I'm like, that is who we're supposed to be. Love that Karen, I don't have this in my notes, but Karen, um, Chip and Kaylee, they went up to Tennessee and they were like trying to figure out, well, how do we find a new church up here in Tennessee? And Karen said, you know, God doesn't normally speak to her, but basically she just came up off the fly that go online and find the church like you were a homeless person or somebody that the society doesn't love. And the church that appeals to that person the most, that's the church you should go to. And so I ask us, are we that church? Who's your enemy? Let me rephrase it, because we don't use the word enemy a lot in our daily life, unless it's, you know, the Kentucky Wildcats or something. <laughs> Who's the difficult people in your life? Who's hurt you lately? Who's talked bad about you lately? Who's made your life difficult? For me, enemy number one is always going to be anybody who hurts my wife or kids. And I imagine a lot of you are that way. Emery, when she was four years old, took her to Disney, just a daddy-daughter thing, and, you know, one night we went out, and she wanted to get the little braid put in her hair, and, you know, she had long hair, and they did the little blue braid. It was so pretty. It's about that big around, and pretty little braid, and, of course, she goes back to school, pre-K, and she's showing all her friends, and this little boy, Benjamin, I'll never forget his name, yanked the braid out, straight up yanked it. I never have wanted to murder a four-year-old more in my life. My big girls, one of them here in the last few weeks, had a teacher that was kind of bullying her a little bit. And I'll be honest, I'm embarrassed by all the hateful and hurtful things I envisioned myself emailing or saying back to her to put her into her place, to bully her a little bit. Enemy number two for me, it's not the wife and kids, it's anybody who damages the gospel. And I probably should have those reversed. I realize that I'm not perfect but if I see somebody doing damage to the gospel, 
Man, that, that just burns me up. I had a really hard time coming to faith. I mean, becoming a Christian was tough. And in part, it was because of Christians. And it was because of Christian leaders. And so when I see people doing damage to the gospel or damage to our faith, man, it just kills me. And so I posted on our Facebook group page this week that misogynistic Baptist pastor who was giving the sermon... And to boil the sermon down in a nutshell, if you didn't see that online, is, is basically, hey, women, if your husband is cheating on you, it's your fault. You need to diet more. You need to keep yourself looking better. You need to put on more makeup. You need to try to be like Melania Trump and not the troll that you are. I mean, this is really the message that he gave. Essentially, husband, if a husband looks at porn or a husband has an affair, it's your fault. And, you know, that it bothered me because I've heard that sermon before. I've been at a church, and maybe it wasn't as curt and brash, but I've heard that sermon. And of course, this guy does it. He's in Missouri, and it goes viral. Both inside the church, people are sharing it. Outside the church, it just it went viral this past week. And I watched it, and the guy makes my skin crawl because he is damaging the gospel. He's making me look bad as a Christian and all my friends think Christians are dumb and bad anyway. And so I wanted nothing more than to see that guy be fired, being taken down, and, and really just nothing good happening to him. But that's the wrong feeling. Jesus says, love your enemy. Pray for your enemy. Find a way to bless your enemy. Do good for your enemy. So I'll ask it again. Who's your enemy? Maybe your enemy is the person or persons you rode to church with tonight. You know, we'll sit here and we'll go, yes, Jesus, love your enemy. Of course we should do that. But then we don't even extend grace to the person we say we love more than anybody in this world. Or maybe it's those little enemies riding in the back seats. <laughs> I heard somebody once say, and it's always stuck with me, children are little modes of sanctification. Leave it to a kid to really cause us to, to see the bad stuff in our lives, the depravity of our hearts, our own selfishness and pride, and the anger we have of serving those little enemies that curse us all the time. Who's your enemy? Is it a friend who's abandoned you when you needed them? Is it a parent that every time you see them, it triggers you? Maybe it's people who aren't actually your enemies per se, but it's people who have hurt your feelings or your pride or your ego. And maybe you do tolerate all of these people. You're like, I'm doing okay, you know, I, don't, I, I tolerate them, I'm civil. But Jesus says to love them. Again, that's a verb. It's do you do for them? Do you open your home to your enemy? Do you open your wallet to your enemy? Here's where Jesus is going to go. He says in verse 29, if someone slaps you on one cheek, offer the other cheek also. We've all heard that before. And essentially, <clears throat> excuse me, this isn't like about a slap fight and, you know, punching each other back and forth. Um, slapping on a cheek and offering, it's, it's, a, it's a backhanded blow. It's a backhanded blow. So somebody slapping you on is, is just a nasty backhanded blow. Jesus says, as citizens in the kingdom of heaven, we should just accept the dishonor of that backhanded blow as opposed to retaliation and coming back at them. He goes on, he says, if someone demands your coat, offer up your shirt also. Give to anyone who asks, and when things are taken away from you, don't try to get them back. He's talking about being radically generous here, even 
generous to a fault. Even generous to people who we know are going to abuse our generosity. But let me make an important point here. Turning the other cheek does not be, mean being a doormat. And I want to be clear on that. I got three dogs at home. We kept them caged up for the baptism today because that would have just been chaos of them diving in and swimming and, you know, it would have just been crazy. But the new little puppy, she terrorizes the older dogs because that's what puppies do. And the two older dogs act in different ways. And so Ivy is the puppy. She's a golden doodle, and she terrorizes Roxy. Roxy's a poodle. Poodles are mean if you don't know this. And if she's not in the mood for the little dog to be messing with her, she will literally try to kill the puppy. It, it sounds like World War III. That's not how we should respond to our enemies. Yogi, on the other hand, is a Labrador retriever, and they are the sweetest, kindest, best dogs in the world, and he likes me the best, so that definitely makes him the best. And poor Yogi's got scabs all over his ears right now, and he's so much bigger than the other dogs, but he won't stand up for himself. That's also not how we should be. Turning the other cheek isn't about being a doormat and letting somebody walk all over you and abuse you. The Apostle Paul, we look in Scripture, when he was being abused by his enemies, he defended himself against his enemies, and he asserted his rights as a Roman citizen. So he was not a doormat. And so I've heard this before. This command is, is to an abused wife, like, just stay with your husband. you got to love your enemy. That's not what this is about. Or if you're in a parent-child relationship, and the parent are just those toxic parents that want to manipulate and control you as a 48-year-old, that's not what this is talking about. You can love them, but you don't have to take the abuse from them. And this isn't about a toxic friendship and, well, i got to love them, so i got to stay in this toxic friendship. That's not what this is about. This is about retaliation. Eye for an eye, cheek for a cheek. This is about retaliation. You know, in the Old Testament, it did say an eye for an eye. But I think Jesus would agree with Gandhi on this, that an eye for an eye and we all go blind. Jesus turned the other cheek in his life, but he was never a doormat. Jesus spoke hard truth, but it was never because of retaliation on that person. Jesus opposed injustice, but he was able to do so without an ego. Jesus would openly tell people what they were doing wrong, but he did so while loving them and forgiving them. Jesus, we remember we read earlier in Nazareth, he would leave towns where they tried to kill him. He didn't just let it happen because he was going to remain in control of the time, place, and method of his death. Verse 31. I'll pull this out for this one. Verse 31. Do to others as you would have them do to you. I have a mask here that says 631. That's Luke 631. It happens to be the motto for my business. I don't know if masks do any good or not, but if I'm around somebody else that's wearing a mask, I put on this mask, and it's just a reminder to me that I'm doing it because if I wanted somebody to wear a mask, I'd want them to put that on. And it's also our, our company motto, and we got them for the office and everything. It's one of my favorite verses because there's no theological degree required to really figure out that verse. All you got to do is ask yourself, in this situation, how would I want to be treated? It's the, it's the golden rule. But it's not always so easy as it sounds. This week, I'm at the doctor's office, and you come in, on the, it's a three-story building. You come in, and on the bottom floor, they took over an old bank, and so it's like a teller station, and they had a long line. 
not a big deal, but a guy comes in and he's just complaining loudly, just off and just going on and on. This is like a bank. This is so terrible. Complain, complain. He just didn't stop. Finally, he gets to the front of the line, which didn't really take all that long. And then he starts abusing the poor girl that's behind the counter, just going on and on how ridiculous it is. She's like, sir, you need to fill out this paperwork. I filled that out nine months ago. I'm not filling that out again. And just, just abusing and going on and on and on. And so when thinking of how I would want to be treated, I was thinking of my daughter who works at Cracker Barrel, who's getting beat up all the time by people doing that same kind of thing. And so I was thinking about how I would want somebody to respond if somebody was treating my daughter like that. Then I thought of this verse. We're supposed to love our enemies. And in this situation, he's the enemy. And so perhaps I should just ignore the situation. He was older. It is what it is. But sometimes loving our enemies is correcting and rebuking them as well. Paul, he loved Peter. You know, they were apostles together. But when Peter started teaching a corrupted gospel, Paul stood up to him and he rebuked him. And not to beat up on poor Peter, but Jesus, when they're talking, he says, get behind me, Satan. That's a pretty, pretty serious blow, but it didn't mean he wasn't loving Peter in that process as he taught him. And so, yes, I should 631, as we say, that girl behind the counter, I should treat her like I would want to be treated, but I also have to 631 the guy with low emotional IQ, which is a mean thing to say, I realize. That's way out of my comfort zone doing this, because I don't like to confront people. Number one, I am a conflict avoider, if you haven't figured that out. And so it's much easier for me to just stay in my lane, but staying in my lane all the time isn't necessarily loving my neighbor. That's being controlled by my fear while I burn up inside with pride and anger how I'm not bad like that person. Number two, though, Karen says when I finally get up the courage to talk to somebody in these situations because I get so built up and worked up about it, well, I tend to be a jerk. She says I get this look on my face, and she can never describe what it is, but I have just this arrogant look, and I just lay into them, and it's brutal, and it's not loving. But I, I think for the last decade or so, God has worked on my heart, and I think I got it right. I stood up for the girl, which was important, and I gracefully and calmly spoke to the man. And, of course, I used a little humor in the process to just calm him down. That's what we're called to do, treat others, including our enemies, the way we want to be treated. And sometimes that is correcting them. Verse 32, it says, you, if you only love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. I want to mention something, and I learned this this week, so I'm going to share it with you. Jesus never actually called people sinners, directly anyway. He would, he would basically say everybody's a sinner, so he's not going to say, well, these people are sinners and these people aren't. He never used the word sinners, but he uses it here, and he's essentially using air quotes. He's, he's using their words and their terminology as he teaches them. So he says, even those people that you think are sinners love people who love them. He continues, he says, and if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Even sinners do that. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get any credit? Even sinners lend money to other sinners for a full return. You see what just happened? Jesus just said that three times. Remember, holy, 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 truly, truly, truly. If Jesus says something three times, it means pay attention. This is really important. And so in that sentence, there's a, a repeating line. It's, why should you get credit? 
Why should you get credit if you do that? Even sinners do that. The word for credit that is used here is the same word throughout the New Testament that is used for grace. It's the word used for unmerited love. And so he says, when you love those who love you already, well, where's the grace in that? When you only love those people who have something that they can offer you, where's the grace in that? We like being around people who like us. We like to be around people who are like us and who love us and who think like us and act like us and people who share the same values, and, and that's okay. I do consulting work from time to time with other insurance agents, and it's about hiring teams and building strong sales organizations. And, you know, I, I use this, and I didn't make this up. I just don't know who I stole it from, but I use this analogy of thoroughbreds and donkeys. And if you build a team of all thoroughbreds, and they're pushing each other, and they're running with each other, and you bring a donkey into that, they're not going to make it very long. They're going to quickly realize they don't fit in, and you don't have that person on your team. But what most people do is they have teams of donkeys. Poor me, and they move slow. And what happens then when you finally get that thoroughbred and you bring them into your team, I don't want to be a part of this team. We like to be around people who push us and motivate us. And that's a fine concept in the business world. It's not a good concept in the kingdom of God. Jesus calls us to love those people who are nothing like us. Those people who you can get nothing from in return. If you're a social justice warrior and you're out there and you're making change, that's a good thing. But doing good for those in need, you're getting something as well. It feels good to help others. It feels good to accomplish something. It feels good to bring justice into the world. You're doing justice but you're getting something. When you love an enemy, most of the time, what do you get? A whole lot of nothing. In fact, you might just get more hate and more cursing and more ungratefulness. Loving an enemy. Loving someone who doesn't love you. Loving someone who has nothing to offer is a selfless, pure act of grace. Most of us operate, though, as if we're grace poor. We operate like we have so little grace ourselves that we don't have any grace left over to share with others. And so we become grace hoarders. We're afraid to spend any of our grace because it's not going to yield a good return. Shark Tank. Anybody fans of the TV show Shark Tank? Yeah, I watch that from time to time. It's repetitive, so it gets boring after a while. But, you know, you got Mark Cuban and um, an IU graduate, by the way, and, and all these billionaires on there and multimillionaires and Basically what happens, there'll be three or four of them on the panel, and someone comes on the show with a business idea, and they want these people to invest in their business idea. And so they'll present it to them, and they'll say, for a 25% stake, I need $900,000, and you know, we're going to partner in this thing. And these guys will sometimes just make the decision right there on the spot. I mean, within 30 seconds, they're like, yes, $900,000, i will invest in you. And sometimes it's not even the business itself. They're like, because I like you. They're just going all in because they like the person or they think it's a neat idea. And if the deal doesn't work out, no big deal. They still got their billions of dollars sitting aside. But if you and I were the three people on the panel on the show... And somebody comes in and they want us to be an investor in the pizza cupcake. We're going to have to think long and hard about that. Like, is this going to, is this going to work out? Is this a good investment for me? Or if they come in and they're trying to, they're trying to get you to invest in Throx. Throx are so socks sold in pairs of three instead of two. So if you lose one, you got a backup sock. 
But you'd, wanna, you'd probably want to do some market research, like do people really want this? What's the past results? What's the trends? Is there a chance I'll get a return on this investment? I saw one this week, one of the worst ones, a pitch for Cougar Energy. It's a drink for older women who are trying to date younger men. <laughs> We're not going to invest in that, I hope. <laughs> Because that would be a terrible investment. We would go broke investing in these crazy ideas because most of them aren't going to work out. But the billionaires, let's give it a chance. Who knows what will happen? This is how we operate with grace. We operate like we have so little grace. We're so grace poor that we have to be picky about who we spend that grace on, who we invest that grace in. Hold on to that thought. Let me finish these verses and we're going to come back. Verse 35 says, Jesus just summarizes the teaching. Love your enemies, in case you missed it, in case you didn't hear me. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be great, and you will truly be acting as children of the Most High, for He is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. To love our enemies is not easy, and so to do it, we need to be grace rich, not grace poor. Jeff Holloman, and and I'm probably going to misquote this because this was over a a lunch conversation one day, but he was telling me Jeff Bezos, the CEO, former now CEO of Amazon, could walk around all day, every day, tossing $100 bills out of his pocket every second of the day, and he would still die a billionaire. He's so rich that he cannot give away his wealth fast enough. Jeff Bezos has nothing on the richness of grace in the bank accounts of the children of God. Of course, everyone is created and loved and valued by God, every person on this planet. But for those who have put their hope in Christ, it says that we've been adopted, making us sons and daughters of the Most High. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We didn't do anything to earn it. It's purely an act of grace to those who are unthankful and wicked, us. And here's the thing. We, we don't just get God's unlimited wealth. We get intimacy with the Father. We get friendship with Jesus. We get unconditional love that we can't lose. Let me read you Romans 5.10. It says, while we were God's enemies, we were enemies of God's. We were reconciled to him through the death of his son, How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? We were God's enemies. Well, here's what God does for his enemies to love them. He turns the other cheek while he's being beaten. While he's being cursed, he's praying for and blessing those who are cursing him. While he's being mistreated, he's praying for people who are mistreating him. On the cross, Jesus gets nothing but abandonment. It's no return. Jesus loved those who didn't love him. Jesus did good for those who only did evil to him. Jesus paid a debt for those that couldn't pay the debt and weren't grateful for the debt that was paid. No matter how broken that enemy is that I'm called to love, I was broken to Jesus. No matter how wrong their views are, I was just as mistaken. No matter how hostile they are to me, I was hostile to God. Until we are amazed by Jesus' grace and mercy towards us while we were enemies, we'll never be empowered 
to live out this command of mercy and grace to others. Jesus gave us, as we sang earlier today, a bottomless ocean of grace so deep that we're sinking in it. So you don't have to be frugal with your grace. You don't have to be tight-fitted with your grace, fisted with your grace. You don't have to spend that stuff like it's going out of style. You can just spend it like it's burning a hole in your pocket. That's how much grace we have. We cannot give it all away. And so I'll share as we close here. I woke up in the middle of the night on Thursday about 3 a.m., and I started thinking about that misogynistic Baptist pastor that was making me crazy. Earlier in the week, I did feel a lot of hate and a lot of anger for him, and it just kind of led me thinking about all the pastors and all the Christians that have that small-minded, old-fashioned mentality. Wednesday afternoon, in fact, I, I was still feeling it, and so I got out my popcorn and started reading all the comments. And You know, there, there, there's a lot of hate, and there's a lot of venom, and there's very little grace. The big word, it seems like this year or maybe last year, is this cancel culture stuff. And I don't listen to a lot of news, so I actually had to look it up to see what it was. It says, cancel culture refers to the practice of withdrawing support for people and companies after they have done or said something considered objectionable or offensive. Christians are called to love our enemies, not cancel them. And so as I laid in bed and I'm thinking about this guy, I began to empathize with the pastor. I mean, absolutely, he should not have taught that, but has anybody ever told him that that's wrong? Maybe that's the teaching he's heard all his life, so he doesn't know any different. And I'll tell you, I started reading all the negative comments on Wednesday, and this is what really messed with me. And a lot of the comments were, how dare he say women have to look a certain way? He's fat, or he's ugly, or he's this, or he's that. How bad did that hurt him? I, mean, I actually was laying in bed going, I don't know, this guy's going to commit suicide. I mean, if somebody said all that nastiness about me, I don't know if I could, I could take that. And then I thought about kind of putting myself in his shoes. What if, what if something went viral that I said? I mean, we're here every night, and it's live, and it's on Facebook, and you know, I can say stupid stuff sometimes. And what if I said something stupid, or it's taking out of context, and it goes viral, and then I get canceled. And it not only destroys our church, it destroys my livelihood because I have a different job that pays me, not this one. And it just my business gets destroyed because of being canceled by something dumb that I said. And so I really just had this kind of epiphany. And I'm sharing it with Karen over breakfast the next morning. And we had a little mini counseling section, session right there at the breakfast table. She said, no, what, what happened is your humility allowed you to have empathy, which brought about compassion, which brings about forgiveness. Richard Rohr says, we do not think ourselves into new ways of living. We live ourselves into new ways of thinking. Loving our enemies, it don't just happen like that, y'all. It's, it's a process. It's a process of letting go. It's a process of humility. It's a process of empathy. And most of all, it's learning to forgive because that is the foundation of being able to love that enemy. And so I thought we would just end tonight, not with songs, but just a time of prayer, because prayer is a big part of forgiving others and loving our enemies. And so I'm going to ask the question that I've asked multiple times tonight, who's your enemy? Just think of that person in your head right now, somebody who has hurt you. Maybe it's, maybe it's a pastor at a former church that's hurt you. Or maybe it's that former friend that you're, just, you're still struggling to forgive. Or maybe it's an ex-spouse 
Or maybe it's a parent that you haven't spoken to in years because of a broken relationship. Maybe, maybe your enemy is some public figure that you're just really struggling not to hate right now. Or, or maybe it's for some of you the person sitting next to you because of the fight you had earlier today. I don't know. Who's your enemy right now? But I just want to end with a time of praying for those people, those enemies. So go ahead and close your eyes and to begin to pray to God and just ask God if he would remove that hate from your heart, if he could remove that anger. And then ask God maybe ways you can actively do for that person. You can love that person. And as you're doing that, take some time to then pray for that person. Father God, you are holy and good and just, and we are not. God, I pray for all of us to grow thicker skin. God, I pray for bigger hearts. God, I pray that we all see the abundance of grace that you've given us, that we are bending beneath its weight and mercy, that we're drowning, God, in grace that we could never spend all of the grace if we have it a billion years and a billion lifetimes. God, show us this week our enemies, not for purpose of retaliation, not for purpose of more hate and anger. Show us our enemies for the purpose of knowing who the people are we need to love. God, we thank you so much for the grace and mercy. We thank you for those baptisms this morning. What a beautiful day. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't have a send-off or anything. Usually we do a song or something, but hey, this week, do that. Look for, look for people that, that enemy is a weird word. We don't use it, but somebody who's hurt you, somebody that's cursed you, that people speak bad about you. Have empathy, have compassion, move towards forgiveness, and as hard as it is, think of how you can love that person. God bless. Love you all. See you next week. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of my enemies. I raise a hallelujah.